welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Uh, my name's Micah, if we haven't met. Wow, that was a weird introduction. Um, I'm, I happen to be the lead pastor of this church. I know that's hard to believe. but um, So we're, we are in a series uh, called Lost in Translation. And we have done this before. We did it last summer. We take passages that are hard to interpret or understand or just are kind of have a weird vibe going on. And uh, we just tackle them and try to understand them uh, more. And so that's what we're doing. We're in week two of that. Last week we talked about Sodom and Gomorrah. And so if you're a podcaster, might want to check that one out. Pretty important one. I felt like a really important one for our community, for me personally. Um, And and last week I really didn't argue for a particular position. Um, Rather, it was a call for uh, hospitality and inclusion of people who are uh, sort of outside, as it were. And and really um, a check on um, what happens when sin grows in our hearts and... um, gets ahead of steam going in a particular direction. That was last week. This week, I'm going to argue very strongly for a particular reading of the passage we're about to read. So, um, not to be confused, I will try to persuade you to see it the way I see it on this one. And it may be because I have three daughters, it may be for other reasons, but that's, that's what I'm fitting to do. Uh, this is a passage about men and women, in particular marriage, now, if you're not married, this is a conversation. I think this conversation is actually bigger than marriage, so don't check out. I think what Paul is arguing for and trying to do in this passage is actually we could use more of this in our world, not just our marriages, okay? So I want to offer that, and, and you may need to do some translating a little bit, but um, please don't check out because I think this one is big. It's, uh, I think it's fundamental to what it means to be human and men and women in relationship with one another in whatever fashion that looks, all right? So if you have your Bible, stand if you will. We'll read from Ephesians chapter 5. This is from uh, a letter that the Apostle Paul has written to a small little church in Lilydale. Oh, we don't meet there. St. Paul. Man, that would have been so much better had I not said Lilydale. He wrote it to the Ephesians, but they're kind of like us. There we go. Hard crowd. (laughs) Starting in verse 21. (laughs) Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Pray with me. God, this morning as we uh, find ourselves here, uh, I believe that you are here. So thanks for that, uh, that gift of yourself to us. Now the challenge is waking up. So whatever it takes, God, uh, wake us up, open our eyes, give us eyes to see you, give us soft hearts to respond to your spirit's movement in our lives, give us the courage to stand in your light, I pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen, you may be seated. What do I think about this verse? Well, let me tell you a story. My wife, who many of you know, was at a gathering at a church where a speaker came, special guest speaker, and she talked about a, day, uh, a book and an idea that had really revolutionized her marriage and revolutionized her, um, her way of seeing her relationship with her husband. And uh, generously, she brought a book for all of the participants who were there that day, and the book was entitled Created to Be His Help Meet. And so you might, you might gather a few thoughts about the position or the perspective from which this book was written. 
And so um, after listening to her story and skimming the pages of the book, my wife politely gave it back and said, I quote, and I promised her that I would not embellish this story at all for the sake of entertainment. Not that I've ever done that before. She said, and I quote, you can give this to someone who's going to read it. Don't be deceived by Laura. She's sneaky, very sneaky. <laughs> she might sneak up on you at some point. Be very careful. Uh, friends, like I said, I warned you, I'm going to argue a particular reading of this passage. And it's my contention that this verse and a few others combined with it, along with Genesis chapter two, chapter 2, have done more harm than they have good for women throughout the history of the church in a lot of communities. Uh, this combination of verses has been used to create and, and really interpreted to create a theology that, is very, that ends up being hierarchical in structure, where there are those who are higher on the totem pole and those who are lower on the totem pole. Now, I will, I will give this caveat, and I hope that you hear me, that I know very faithful, Jesus-loving, God-honoring, um, wonderful in, people of integrity who live in this particular way of understanding. It's called complementarianism. And um, this is not a, a smash on anybody who doesn't see it this way. I just think this is really, really important, and I want to try to convince you to see what I, have, I feel like I've seen and, and what I'm trying to live in. Um, so this particular understanding of this passage uh, is often, it creates a hierarchy of relationships, and it's called complementarianism at best, at worst, I think it's patriarchalism. And it happens in the scriptures, and I think it still happens in our world today. So here's what I want to do this morning, if that wasn't an opener for you. Uh, I want to try to argue that this particular understanding, this one that creates a hierarchy of relationships between men and women, actually misses the trajectory and the heart of the scriptures as a whole. It absolutely misses what happens and what Jesus accomplishes in the resurrection, and I think it misses what Paul is doing by what he says in the letters that he writes. Now, if you know anything about communication in the English, English language, there are multiple levels of it. It's actually, it's called speech act theory. And so sometimes when we say something, there's the utterance level, like what was said and what is the definition of the words that were said. But then there's a whole nother level, like the implications or the implied intent of what was said. So I think Paul is doing something by saying what he says. That's what I want to try to argue for. So I want to, I want to, um, I want to do this in a couple ways. I want to begin with Paul's assumptions. What does Paul assume when he sits down and writes Ephesians chapter 5 and other letters like it? What's going on in the system tray? What is, what's sort of already believed by Paul about certain things related to male and female relationships? Then I want to ask the specific question of why, why does he then tell women to submit to their husbands? Like, what's going on there? And for husbands to love their wives. And then I want to try to bring some implications for us as a community. All right? Are you with me? All right, here we go. Stretch break. All right. Number one, uh, what is Paul's assumption? Maybe you could say this differently. What's Paul's base? There's this great movie with a guy named Will Smith. You guys ever seen this one where he's like a setup guy? People come to him to try to like get dates. What's the name of that one? Hitch. Hitch, that's it. I was trying to think about it last night. I'm like, I don't remember. So you've got Will Smith who's this suave black guy and then this guy who comes to him who is just 
totally white, okay? I mean, they cannot dance every stereotype about a white guy and stereotype about a black guy. They're, they're true here in terms of rhythm and dance, all right? So Will Smith is with him, and he's like, all right, show me your best moves. And this guy's like, you know, just like flailing around like a maniac. And he's like, stop, 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 stop. This is home. This is your base. Don't move from it. Don't deviate from it. Just keep rocking it. Let them come to you. Do not try any other move other than this one. This is home base. You got me? So what's Paul's base? You know, like, what's his, what's his move? What's he rocking? See how that fits? See how those two, <laughs> those two go together? I always wanted to tell that story in a, in a sermon, and I was like, i got to figure out a way to do it. And I just felt like that was the best shot I'd ever have. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. But seriously, what's his base? Like, where does he start from? What's home for him? And I would say it this way. Um, Paul, when he writes, always has in mind law, resurrection, and new creation. Law, resurrection, new creation. By law, I mean Old Testament scriptures, of which the law is five books, and then there's more, but I'm just putting it all in one. Law, resurrection, new creation. Break those down a little bit. Break it down. Paul is a Jew. He... (laughs) I didn't do that first hour. I wish I hadn't done it for this hour. <laughs> Paul's a Jew. He's more than a, or he's a Pharisee. He's been trained by these folks. He's trained in a school where they've taught Torah and the reading or the writings and the prophets. He knows scripture backwards and forwards. And so everything that Paul writes concerning Yahweh and Israel and now Jesus comes from this lens or this base. Now, this is really fascinating. This almost ended up on the cutting room floor, but I had to put it in here. Paul was trained by a particular rabbi because this is how they did it. Someone, a young boy, would come to a, a teacher and say like, or a teacher would come to a young boy who, thought, who thinks like, this guy can do what I do, and he would say, come and follow me. Oh, that's fascinating. I think I've heard that before. So the rabbi would come to the, the, the student and say, come and follow me and take my yoke upon you. Oh, I think I've heard that too. The yoke is essentially my interpretation of the law, my interpretation of Torah, how I read it, right? So Paul was taught by a famous rabbi, one of the most famous rabbis in all of Judaism called, jeez, uh, 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 come on, Gamaliel, there it is, it's a tough one, it's a tough one, Gamaliel, and this guy, fascinatingly enough, now I've done a little bit of research on this and I haven't found a student who, te- who learns under a rabbi and then goes in a totally different direction, it may be out there but I haven't found it yet, Gamaliel, ironically enough, his position and his teachings on women were ridiculously progressive for his day. One author says this, the surviving sayings of Rabbi Gamaliel indicate a favorable attitude toward women in contrast to much of rabbinic Judaism. If Paul was a student of this rabbi, then it is not hard to believe that he shared his attitude towards women and is in fact the assumption that Paul begins with when he writes New Testament churches. What's just been said? This author says, well, if Gamaliel was a progressive rabbi and his his thoughts and views on women were progressive, then so were Paul's. So first there's law and Torah. This is how Paul learns. This is who he learns from. But we know, of course, that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. It's the hinge upon which everything turns. Uh, According to Paul, in Christ... There is a new relationship to the law for the believer. So where there once was this relationship between Israel and the law, in Christ there is now a new relationship to those who follow Jesus and the law. Take, for example, what happens in the book of Acts with Peter. He has a dream. He's he's a good Jew. He's not supposed to eat meat sacrificed to idols. And he has a vision. The angel comes to him and says, 
dude, chill, it's cool, eat, drink, you know, it's not a big deal. New relationship to the law. So because of Christ, in Christ, there's a new relationship to the law. And that new relationship to the law and God's work in our lives, Paul says, is new creation. He says, anyone in Christ, new creations, Ephesians. Now, what is at stake or what's being said about new creation? If you could sum it up in a couple of values, what is Paul really saying is present or available to us in, as new creations? He says, you're free in Christ. You are free, regardless of gender, Paul says. In Christ, new deal, new creation, you're free. Freedom, freedom, freedom for all. He says, mutual submission and equality marks new creation relationships. Paul says, all people, regardless of gender, are gifted by the Spirit for the work of God's, or for the work of the kingdom, for the work of the church in the world. All are gifted, regardless of gender. Paul says that love is the mark of these new covenant, these new creation relationships. So if you look at Paul in his whole work in his letters and and Romans, if he wrote it, which I think he did, what Paul argues for in new creation is you're free in Christ, any and all, regardless of gender. Regardless of gender, you are gifted if if you are in Christ. All people are gifted. If you are, um, that mutual submission and equality marks these new relationships, these new creation kinds of relationships. Paul argues this overwhelmingly throughout his letters. He says in Ephesians, be completely humble and gentle, be patient and bearing one another in love. We are all members of one body. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for you, give yourself up for others, men and women. So over and over, Paul is arguing for this. This is the base from which he begins. So why does he seem to say something that's counter to that logic, right? That's the question at hand. That's the sort of conundrum. I just read Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit to yourself. Submit yourselves to your husbands. That seems counter to these things that I'm arguing Paul is saying all through his letters. So what's going on here? This one's the key that unlocks the castle for me. If you're trying to figure out how do I make sense of, and if I, I, I get the sense that God is like this, but I read the scripture and it doesn't line up with it on this issue, this one I feel like opens the doors. One author says, many of the pagan roles for women, however, were repugnant to Christian morality, not just because they were sexually immoral, but because they did not treat women as full persons. This left Paul with a thorny problem, and here it is. How could women demonstrate Christian liberty and equality in Christ without bringing offense to the gospel? That's the question at the center of Paul's letters when he talks about these issues. Women, you are free in Christ. Where there was once laws and regulations that denigrated you and oppressed you and put you down, you are free in Christ. They are gone. The old is gone and the new has come. Amen, sister. So Paul says then, how... How does a Christian woman live out her liberty and freedom in Christ in a culture that actually goes the opposite direction without bringing offense to the gospel? That's what's at stake here. That's the key that opens the door. If you you use that lens, then you start reading all these passages that Paul's talking about, and you're like, okay, maybe this is what he's doing. Oh, makes total sense that he would say that instead of, I hate that guy. You ever read Paul and be like, that guy's a jerk? It's okay. You can raise your hands. It's fine. It's fine. This is church. I've actually read Paul, and I'm like, what a buttwad. (laughs) Highly technical theological term there. 
Before we move on to like, why does Paul ask women to submit and men to love, I think we could say more about this in a piece that's really important. We can say more about what the resurrection and new creation says to male and female relationships. And I would say it this way. I've said it already, but I'll say it on the screen here. Mutual submission one to another and equality. This is what the, the, the resurrection of Jesus and new creation speaks to or speaks into male and female relationships, regardless of where they're found, in a marriage or in friendship or in the workplace or in a family. Mutual submission one to another and equality. Now, we might think that this is a New Testament idea, but I would actually argue that it's all the way back at the beginning of the story. Genesis chapter 2, God says, or the book Genesis says, that God makes Adam, 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 and that there's no suitable partner for Adam. Looks around, all the animals. Nope, lion, nope, giraffe, nope, elephant, certainly not. We got to do something about this, right? So, deep sleep, out comes the rib, and we have what the text says is an ezer kenegdo. E-Z-E-R-K-N-E-D-G-O. Ezer kenegdo. Translated, suitable helper in many of our translations. And some of your translations might even say, help meet. I would convince you to go buy yourself a new Bible. (laughs) Hopefully it will be clear why. Ezer Kenegdo, two words. The first one means help or uh, uh, power or like a a source or a force, like something that comes to help, Ezer. And Kenegdo means in front of or opposite to. So God makes Eve, who is a help, a power, a force, opposite to or in front of Adam. One, one, one author argues that it could be best translated face to face, is what Eve is to Adam. That sort of changes the tone, doesn't it? What's interesting about this word, <laughs> it's used again in scripture, And guess what, friends? Nowhere in Scripture is it used as a subordinate term. Come on now. Are you kidding me? It's used again in Scripture, and nowhere is it used as a subordinate term. So whoever is called the Ezer Kenegdo is never hierarchically lower than or subordinate to that which the referent, who they're being the Ezer Kenegdo to. It's often used of God, actually. When God is the Ezer Kenegdo to Israel. So it's either a superior, in God's case, or at the very least, equal. One author author argues that this could be best translated, Eve is a power equal unto Adam. I'm building a treehouse right now. Do you guys know this? Some of you might have seen it on Facebook. It has, uh, it's supposed to be a treehouse. It's turned into like a tiny house. It's gigantic. It is a monster, and it just keeps growing. I don't know how to stop it. <laughs> it's got two levels. It's an 8 by 10 platform, and it's got a sleeping loft up top. So the kids are really excited about finishing this. But the other day, I got my first chance to frame a ridge beam. Now, if you didn't know what a ridge beam is, I would just invite you to look straight up. Go ahead. That beam right there running east-west at the top of this church is called a ridge beam. The ridge beam sits on top of two gable-end walls. 
in a notch that holds the, the ridge beam. And then the roof rafters are laid in place. And actually what's happening is the ridge beam is holding up the roof and keeping it from caving in. And then that load is transferred down through the walls. The engineers may have some, you can talk to me later if I didn't get that right. But that's the general gist of it. Now what happens if one of those ridge or one of those sides is uh, more powerful than or bigger than or dominant than and one is superior or inferior or subordinate to the other? The whole house falls over. The roof collapses. It only works when these two things are powers equal unto the other and they're using the ridge beam as that which holds them up or connects them to one another. Come on, friends. We got ourselves a ridge beam here. I think this is actually what's What's intended in creation, that male and female would be equal unto one another, powers equal unto the other, reflecting both, reflecting the image and love and beauty of God, and working together. Not this subordinate hierarchical situation. Actually, Genesis 3 brings a foreign object into the whole situation. It's not the norm, where the two will be at enmity with one another and one will be over the other. That's actually the result of sin, not God's purposes or intent or heart. Oh, that's good news. So this is all in the background when Paul's writing Ephesians chapter 5. Genesis 2, he knows it by heart. It's all there. So what he calls the church to, new creation, it's all in the background. These are the assumptions that he has. Why then does Paul say husbands, or wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives? On this one, syntax and sentence structure actually become very, very important. So let me nerd out for just a moment. I think it will pay in the end. This is, Genesis, uh, this is uh, Ephesians 5, 21 and 22. Now you'll notice at the top, submitting yourselves to one another in reverence of Christ. Verse 22, wives to thee or to your own husbands as to the Lord. English majors, what is missing in verse 22? Say it louder. A verb. If you have a translation that has verse 22 and it says, wives, submit to your husbands, it's been added. Because it's actually not there. There is no verb in verse 22. It does not say, wives, submit to your husbands. Now, you might be wondering, what on earth kind of Bible do we have around here and why don't they tell us these things? Hang tight, people. It's actually pretty normal in this language that one sentence would borrow or use the verb from the previous one. So what's happening in verse 22 is it's assuming verse 21. It needs the verb of 21 in order to flush out what Paul is saying. So you can't get rid of anything that Paul says in 21. Submit yourselves one to another as, Christ, as unto the Lord. You can't get rid of any of that. You can only add to it in verse 22. So what Paul is saying in verse 22, I would argue, is a contextual piece. This is, here's the imperative, here's the norm. Submit to one another as unto the Lord. Now, husbands or wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands will love your wives. I think there's a reason for that, and I'm about to tell you what it is. But you've got to see that to see what's happening there. I think it's really important. So why then does Paul ask women to submit? Imagine, for me, imagine with me, if you will, for just a second, a scenario in which... In the ancient Near East, in a culture and in a system and in a society where women are denigrated, oppressed, uh, uh, used, abused, 
not able to testify, not able to do anything of value or worth societally, but really only take care of the home and produce babies. In that culture, if somebody comes over and says, the doors are wide open, people, all is yours. You are free, free, free. You might imagine if the pendulum has swung all the way over here for so long, what might happen? Mutual, the move is not going to be towards mutual submission, right? If you're free and you've been oppressed for as long as you know, you might take that and run with it all the way because it's yours, because you're free. So Paul essentially says, for the sake of the gospel, let's not blow up the entire thing in one fell swoop. If we release all the power that has been bound up in femininity all at once, people's heads might start exploding. Do you remember, the, uh, if any of you have seen the movie Lincoln, there's this great scene with Tommy Lee Jones and Daniel Day-Lewis, Lincoln, and I can't remember his name, he plays another character, right before they're about to go up for this super important vote as it relates to slavery. Tommy Lee Jones wants to go from zero to 100. He's like, everybody's free right now, all, you know, all the way. And Daniel Day-Lewis says, Lincoln, he says, if you want to get to 100, this is my paraphrase, if you want to get to 100, you have to get to 20 and 30 and 40 first. I would argue that what he does, Lincoln, and the wisdom and the brilliance of his leadership is that he puts the thing on a trajectory that's headed towards abolition and freedom for all. But he recognizes that if he goes there right now, the whole thing is shot. It's like somebody pulls the grenade, the pin on the grenade. I think this is what Paul's doing. He puts it on a trajectory that heads in this direction. Paul says, for the sake of the gospel, ladies, for the sake of the gospel, Titus 2.5 says, women, submit to your husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Because of your commitment to the gospel and because the, the gospel asks us, all, asks us all to do this, mutual submission to one another, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Why? Because the entire culture is going in the other direction if everybody's free. And for you as people who follow Jesus, this is still a part of our call to one another. Now, he says something equally crazy to husbands. He says, husbands, love your wives. <laughs> that is an absolute bombshell on the ancient Near Eastern landscape. Because in marriage, love was not even a part of the discussion. It wasn't a part of the conversation. It wasn't the point. The point was babies and taking care of your home and satisfying your sexual appetites and desires. That was really it. Women were, a, they were, a nece they were necessary and they were property. They couldn't vote. They couldn't testify in court, which is so fascinating that the first witness of the resurrection is a lady. That's another sermon. But either way, love was not a part of the conversation. And so Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Lay yourself down for her as he did for you. This would radically change the landscape of the institution of marriage if men actually did this. So both of the admonitions that Paul gives in, the, in Ephesians are to women and men specifically and contextually related to their situation. Now, do I think that because we're not there anymore that we shouldn't love our wives? No, that's not the point. But you can't miss this. Paul speaks into a particular context and culture. And what he says, especially to women in this one, is not ad infinitum for the rest of history as it relates to women. That's what I'm arguing. Contextual. One author says, how many rabbis have ever said to a man, you should love your wife as Yahweh loved Israel. Nero, none, zero. Nobody's on record saying that. 
So what Paul says to men is equally as bizarre and transforming as what he says to women. I think Paul puts the thing on a trajectory that's headed somewhere, but he can't go all the way there. This guy, Howard Marshall, says, although Paul moved towards love-based patriarchalism, still patriarchal, but at least it's based in love now, and the road is open to mutual love and, and brothers and sisters in Christ, the final step was not yet taken by Paul. And if I'm being totally honest, because why should I stop now? If I'm being totally honest, I think if Paul were to walk into our churches this morning, he would be really, really upset and really, really sad. This is my honest opinion based on my study and my really pressing into this and trying to get to the bottom of it. I think Paul would walk in here and he'd say, I set the thing up for a revolution, people. I gathered all the wood. I put it, I made a teepee with little kindling. I did everything but light the match. And now there's 2,000 years of oppressive history in the church's closet in some ways towards women. I think he would be really sad. And I'm sad. Now, I recognize, gang, this is, uh, this is a particular view of a passage, and I offer it to you, and this is the beginning of a conversation at Awaken. We always talk about the sermon as the beginning, not the end of it, so you may totally disagree with me. But I, I am more and more and more convinced on this, the more I study, that I did not see it the way that Paul set it up, and that I missed really, really important parts of it all along the way that actually did damage to people. So here's what I want to do as we close today. I want to offer an opportunity to respond to this. Now, you may be here this morning and you may say, respectfully, Micah, I disagree with you. I totally get it. It's fine. You don't have to leave. You can come to tailgating in a couple weeks. We can have a burger. We can chat about it. Love it. But for those of you who may be here this morning and you might be thinking, I I think I might be with you, Micah, on this one, and I think maybe I didn't see some of this before, and I always had this weird feeling in my stomach of like, I don't know why it says says it's supposed to be this way, so I think it's supposed to be this way, but I think there might be a better way to think about it. I think there is. If that's you this morning, I think it may be just a really, really uh, poignant moment to, to repent Repentance in the scripture is to turn around and go a different direction. Like this is what I saw before and now I've seen this and I want to—I actually think that this is the way that leads to life. And so maybe this morning it's a moment of repentance where in your own heart you say, ah, I think I maybe missed this one and I want to go in a different direction. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been on the other side of that and you feel like you've had gifts and something to offer that wasn't valued and wasn't taken into consideration and maybe even suppressed. And I want to offer an opportunity for you to say, you know what, I will take that gift and stand in it this morning. So in just a moment, I'm going to offer an opportunity uh, for response. We're going to have a moment of silence. And I want to offer you an opportunity to respond to that. Again, you may disagree with me, this is, this is my, I'm doing my best here to get this right, and I think that this looks the most like Jesus and is the most faithful to the text. So, a word of silence and an opportunity to respond, and then John, Mark, and the band are gonna lead us in a song uh, 
that they'll sing over us, and I think it's just a beautiful prayer and way to sort of galvanize our hearts on this particular subject this morning. So, if you would, pray with me. God, this morning, we, uh, we come, and uh, I ask that you would speak to us, Holy Spirit, that you would set people free. I pray that um, in these next few moments that you would invite us to a response. Maybe that response is repenting and saying, I'm sorry. If there are ways that I have participated or enabled communities or perspectives that did anything less than set people free and open the doors wide like the resurrection does, then I'm sorry. Or maybe, Holy Spirit, you might lead to healing for some, to say, there's more, there's more. The doors are open, you're free. And so I pray that if people need to hear that this morning and need to feel it and live in it, maybe for the first time, that that would happen. So Holy Spirit, come, speak to us, invite us to look more and more like you and your son. So here's what I want to do. I want to, this may feel a little weird for Awaken, but we're going for it. Um, I want to invite you to respond if you feel like the Lord is leading you to do so this morning. If there's any sense of sorrow or sadness or repentance in your heart, I want to invite you to align your body with your spirit. There are kneelers in this church and they're not like a really great aesthetic thing or like they're not a furniture thing. They're to help us connect our bodies with our hearts. And so if you in any way feel that that is a, a movement you want to respond to, then as John and the band sing this song over us, I want to invite you to use the kneelers. And I'm going to come right down here and I'm going to kneel because I repent of that. Uh, and I want something more for my daughters. I want them to be free in Christ. And I know I have participated, not because my heart was black or because uh, I just didn't know any better. And I feel like I've seen now and I can't unsee. And so if that's you and you want to respond, that I would just invite you wherever you are, flip a kneeler down and connect your body with your heart. Maybe you're here this morning and you want to stand and you want to say, I receive that gift. I receive that word of you're free and you're gifted and you're valued and dignified and beautiful. Not because of what you produce, 
or what function you play, but because you are you, made in the image of God. And if you want to stand in that and receive that this morning, I would invite you to stand right where you are during this song. And this song says, God of hope, uh, you're near to us. Take away our loneliness. I think in some ways, we've created a system and a belief about God that's actually led us to, to, to more and more loneliness and not more and more connectedness. So let this song just wash over us as a community and heal whatever needs to be healed. So however you want to respond, and if it's just to stay where you are, that's fine. But if you want to stand in that today or if you want to kneel as a way to say, I'm sorry, then I invite you to do so.
Friends, I invite you to stand for a benediction. Uh, if you have prayer, a uh, need for prayer uh, regarding anything, whether it's something today or not, uh, our prayer team would be delighted to pray with you and for you. Um, what would a community of Jesus followers modeling this kind of reality look like in the world? And how compelling might it be? I think pretty compelling. So may you see the image of God in the other. May you learn to celebrate it for all that it brings. May you stand in the power that you bring and that you possess. And may you stand face to face as equals unto one another. Amen? Grace and peace, my friends. Go build the kingdom. Have a nice day. Enjoy the sunshine. See ya. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash awakencommunity or on Twitter at awakencommunity. See you next time.